you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Today on The Megan Kelly Show. This has to be the worst example of <laughs> absurd pandering I've seen from a president in a while. I want to speak to the one branch of your massive news organization that addresses the problems of black Americans only <laughs> and not to Brett Baer, one of the most respected news people in the country uh, and a good guy who would give him a tough but fair interview because why? Because because he works at the same place that Hannity and Tucker work. Man up, President Biden, man up. And Corinne Jean-Pierre comes out to say we were perfectly prepared to sit with Fox Soul. We're just not going to do it with anyone from the Fox News. I mean, I can't believe this is just ridiculous beyond parody. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest and provocative conversations. Hey, everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Happy Friday. Senator John Fetterman is still in the hospital. Third day now. And despite his spokesperson and his wife claiming there's nothing to see here, uh, we're getting the truth about his condition. We swear. Well, are we? I don't know. The New York Times is actually now trying to tell the truth, it appears, uh, about Fetterman's health now that he's in the hospital. Now that he's been elected and he's in the hospital after a month of serving as a United States senator, the New York Times has taken an interest in actually probing the severity of his condition. We'll get to that in one second. Plus, at this moment, the FBI searching Vice President Mike Pence's house for more classified documents. Yes, the story that will never end. <laughs> so glad to be joined on this newsy afternoon by one of our favorites, Victor Davis Hansen, author, author of The Dying Citizen and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Victor, great to have you back. So let's start with Fetterman. It's really remarkable, uh, just looking at this piece on them. It only took him winning and then being hospitalized for the New York Times to come clean on exactly what seems to be going on there. His adjustment, this is quoting, his adjustment to serving in the Senate has been made vastly more difficult by the strains of his recovery, which left him with a physical impairment and serious mental health challenges that have rendered the transition extraordinarily challenging, even with the accommodations that have been made to help him adapt. Uh, his chief of staff is quoted as saying, what you're supposed to do to recover from this, meaning this stroke that almost killed him in May, is to do as little as possible. And he has done quite the opposite. He's being monitored, we're told, for seizures. They believe they've ruled out a second stroke. Um, but we had a doctor on yesterday talking, Victor, about how the fact that he had both a pacemaker and a defibrillator implanted after that stroke is alarming and tells us that this may have been a lot more complex than they let on. They have never released his medical records. We've never heard from a cardiologist. Uh, we've only heard from a general care physician that he was, quote, fit to serve. And now we're on day three of a hospital stay uh, that we still probably won't get the medical records on. And now the man is Senator John Fetterman. What do you make of it? 
Well, it's kind of analogous to how they view Joe Biden. Joe Biden had cognitive challenges. Everybody knew that. He campaigned in a 19th century style in his basement. And his his role was to get, get them across the finish line and turn over his agenda to the hard left. And now you're starting to see a little leaking about Joe's cognitive problems um, from people within the administration. Same thing was through with Fetterman. His role was to get elected. It's far more rigorous to campaign than it is to be a U.S. senator. So uh, if he can't be a U.S. senator and he couldn't campaign, they knew this the entire time. And anybody who voiced concern was accused of ableism. You remember that, that you were yep. deprecating uh, the health of somebody who was impaired. And then there's the, the other thing is the asymmetry of it all. When Donald Trump got in that exchange with Kim Jong-il about, mm, about the uh, buttons and nuclear weapons, they said he was crazy. And all of a sudden we had Rod Rosenstein and Andrew McCabe apparently wearing a wire or we're going to to entrap the president to prove that he had should be removed. We had Rosa Brooks in foreign policy calling for either a coup or a 25th Amendment removal of Donald Trump because he wasn't fit cognitively. They had this bandy, remember Hurley, the Yale psychiatrist that they dragged up uh, to Congress, and then she testified that there should be an intervention, straitjacket, remove Donald Trump. And it got so bad, finally, he had to take the Mon Montreal Cognitive Assessment by his doctor, Ronnie Jackson. And of course, he aced it. And so when it turns, it's just the same thing that we've seen the entire time. Donald Trump has to be subject to all these things with a mere inference. We even had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs call his Chinese counterpart to say, Donald Trump may be kind of crazy if he orders me to do something I don't like. And the DEFCON 5 or something, then I will call you in advance. So they're very sensitive about cognitive abilities and leadership, except when it applies to them. Mm -hmm. So I think they think there's a Republican governor now in Pennsylvania. I mean, a Democratic governor in Pennsylvania and Fetterman did his job. They he got elected and now that the governor can appoint somebody who's uh, more effective. Right. Well, you're exactly right. So now The New York Times is totally fine reporting on the severity of his condition because they know the seat's secure. We don't we don't need a, it doesn't have to be John Fetterman. Look at him. He's a disaster. Let's get somebody else in there. Let's Absolutely. make it his wife. Yeah. Let's do somebody. But yeah, we admit the guy's not fit to serve. They didn't say it in those words, but they're talking yeah, well, they, about they don't how... want him. Meg. I, yeah, go, go ahead. I don't think they want him ill and then not resigning. So when a you know, very close Senate, they don't want him saying in hospital and say, no, this is my Senate seat. I'm not going to give it up. But he has to be there in person to vote. And so in some cases, if a Joe Manchin defected or something, the margin's so thin that they don't want to take that chance if, that he might be, you know, unable to physically get into the Senate and cast a vote. I'm recalling Pete Wilson once when he had a ruptured appendix, they, they dragged him in, remember, on a gurney to vote in person. They needed that one vote. And so I think they're really mm -hmm. worried that he he just got elected. He doesn't want to give up his seat and they want to build a case that he's it's time for him to bow out. He did his duty and they want somebody that's more hail and would be there in person for every vote. And they can't count on him to do that. Here's some more color from the piece, just in case our listening audience had any doubt about what you're saying. Again, this is The New York Times. The latest health scare convinces staff that Mr. Fetterman needs a better plan to take care of himself, both physically and emotionally. Uh, aides and confidants describe his introduction to the Senate as a difficult period. 
filled with unfamiliar duties that are taxing for someone still in recovery. The beginning of the piece went through all the accommodations they're having to make for this guy all over the Senate. Um, the most evident disability is a neurological condition that impairs his hearing. He suffers from auditory processing issues. The hearing issues are inconsistent. They often get worse when he is in a stressful or unfamiliar situation. When it's bad, Fetterman has described it as trying to make out the muffled voices of the teacher in the Peanuts cartoon whose words could never be deciphered. Uh, then they go on to say that the stroke, which of course led to a pacemaker and a defibrillator being implanted, also took a less apparent but very real psychological toll on Mr. Fetterman. It's been less than a year since the stroke transformed him from someone with a large stature that suggested machismo into a physically altered version of himself. He's frustrated at times. They go on to say he has come to terms with the fact that he may have set himself back permanently by not taking the recommended amount of rest during the campaign. And he continues to push himself in ways people close to him worry are detrimental. I mean, this is about as close as the New York Times will ever get to saying he can't do the job. Yeah. And that, everything they wrote was visible in the debate with Dr. Oz. Everybody said that he was deer in the headlights. It was kind of tragic that they put him in that situation. But a lot of us wrote that that was uh, pretty much prima facie evidence that he was non-compos mentis. And when you wrote that, people got very angry. Anybody who wrote that was considered cruel and unfair and that his his debate performance wasn't that bad and maybe it was a draw and it was it you could have used every word the new york times just wrote to characterize how he performed in the debate everybody knew that and uh the new york times has lost all credibility it's just simply a uh, an extension that's a few it's fused with the democratic party and it's it's tragic that's tragic too but you can't believe anything it says at any given time do you remember the fierce backlash against the NBC reporter, Dasha Burns, who interviewed him and said yes. he had auditory processing issues and he had comprehension, comprehension issues and he wasn't speaking correctly, even in the in the small talk leading up to the interview and the pile on Victor. I mean, the one I remember in particular remember was Kara that. Swisher, who was like, who is this moron essentially saying this kind of thing mm -hmm. about, you know, one of this respected man who obviously has had minor issues. And I interviewed him. He was just fine. Here's what she said. Sorry to issue. This is Kara Fisher at the time. Sorry to say, but I talked to John Fetterman for over an hour without stop uh, and or any aides. And this is just nonsense. Maybe this reporter is just bad at small talk. Well, maybe Kara Swisher needs to go talk to the place she used to write for New York Times and figure out why they're now saying it's severe. And that he's not handling his responsibilities well in the Senate. He pushed it too far and too fast. And there are real questions about whether he's capable of doing a, the job. Where is this Dasha Burns going to go for her apology? Nowhere. And you know what's funny about that is that they accuse the other reporter of unprofessionalism for disclosing what was supposed to be pre-interview chat that was quote unquote off the record. And then the person who was trying to refute that was off the record saying, I talked to him. It wasn't in a formal interview. It was chit chat. So she was using chit chat as a legitimate way of refuting somebody who had remarked about chit chat. But that was unprofessional. If it was negative, it's only professional if it's positive. Everything about him is so about the Times reporting and, and in general, the Washington Post, NPR is so asymmetrical. And that was I guess that was one of the the contributions that Trump did inadvertently that he he reminded everybody that that we don't have a media in the traditional sense of the disinterested word. It doesn't exist anymore.
Uh, I'm just looking at some more of this. Uh, th these are some of the people who came out. Okay, just just as a reminder, because you know we like to keep the receipts. Uh, Rebecca Traster of New York Magazine in the Cut tweeted she had recently interviewed Fetterman, found his comprehension not at all impaired. He understands everything. It's just that he reads it um, and responds in real time. And I mentioned the, the Kara Swisher, Molly Jong Fast, another journalist and podcast host. She too recently interviewed Fetterman. He understood everything I was saying. He was funny. New York Times correspondent Jonathan Martin tweeted, it was a rough clip for Fetterman. Uh, oh, he actually was on the other side It'll, and will only fuel questions about his health. Uh, and we could go on from there. So all these people run to you know cover for him pre-election victor because they need that seat they need that seat mm -hmm. and it it is similar to the biden situation where now with 60 plus percent of democrats saying they want someone else you start to see a revival of the reports about whether biden's capable of handling yeah, a right. second term right and then you start yeah, to see hit pieces does. by the new york times on kamala harris Got to get rid of her, too. Now the truth comes out, which we've seen all along, which is, of course, Biden can't handle a second term. And Kamala Harris is not their answer either. I think everybody said when Joe Biden was on the, the debate platform during the primaries, I, everybody, I mean, people on the debate stage that were Democrats, I think Cory Booker said, I don't know what he's talking about at one point because he was so um, incoherent. And then when he announced after George Floyd, I guess it was that he was going to select a female African-American vice president candidate, a lot of us said, well, he's got cognitive problems and then there, there doesn't happen to be a lot of national uh, African-American women that are governors or senators from the traditional pool in which you select a vice president. And the ones that there are, such as Kamala Harris, are not qualified. And so we could see this train wreck building that he was going to at some point there were going to be really questions about whether he could continue and then people were going to look at Kamala Harris and say you know there's nothing that she's ever done in her entire career that's impressive she has no record of achievement whatsoever and she's not able to really articulate any position and um, and she got no delegates she she was before the public for months with a well-funded campaign she didn't win a single delegate that the people rejected her at the polls. But that was another big con. And if you said something about Joe Biden's mental health, then you were considered ableist. So right, I think exactly it, it, it's, right. it's, a good, it's a good reminder to everybody that all of these isms and ologies that the left employs, they're not to be taken seriously. They're, it's about power. And whatever the particular ends is, they will make any means necessary to get there and have euphemisms or new vocabulary, but they don't really believe it. And some, if Fetterman is ill or Fetterman is healthy, it's not really predicated on what his actual status is as far as the left is. They will make the necessary adjustments depending on whether you want him to get elected or you want him to continue or not. And then they, that's what they do. Right. It's like, oh, you can't you can't say he's not to fit to fit to serve. Only we can say he's not fit to Only serve. You guys exactly. need to be quiet until we decide we're done with Biden and Kamala and Fetterman. We will be the arbiters of that. Meanwhile, I mean, just the, that, the, yeah. the irony, yeah. Victor, of the fact that, you know, Dr. Oz and I realize he had trouble, some trouble relating to the folks there. But Dr. Oz is a very smart guy. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon. This guy <laughs> He's sitting out there not doing this job. And and Fetterman, 
who's got a defibrillator and a pacemaker and is incapable of serving right now, third day in the hospital without releasing any of the real information, never heard from his cardiologist. Like the the choice that Pennsylvanians had in terms of somebody who was more than capable of serving may not have been your perfect cup of tea. And this guy. Right. And they were bussing people by the droves to go vote for Fetterman. We know some of them. Uh, and this is what they've gotten themselves. Yeah, I think it's even worse than that. I think from the time he was elected until and then through his inauguration as senator, they didn't say any of this because they felt, well, we don't really care if he's impaired or not, just so he's physically able to go in there and take an order about what to vote or who to vote for. And as long as he was doing that, we didn't hear any of this. The moment he goes in the hospital and it's there's some question of whether he's going to be uh, take a long time to recover. Then they panicked and they thought, my gosh, he's not even able to take instructions from us. He can't physically walk in and push a button. Therefore, now he's a liability. I think they yes. even preferred the fact that he, because he is controversial, he can say anything at any time. They liked the idea that he was so somewhat impaired so he could just push a button. You're going to vote for this. You're going to vote for that. And he could physically show up. But now I think they're they're suddenly telling us, well, you know, he's got real problems. And that means real problems to them mean he's not physically able to go vote as we tell him to. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, we'll continue to follow it and see what happens with John Fetterman. I mean, I, I don't even know. Are we rooting for Giselle Fetterman to take? I don't this is like I don't I don't think there's going to be a better outcome. It's just the the gall of those in charge over the disclosures and the lack of transparency. Um, OK, speaking of lack of transparency quickly, because I really don't want to spend a lot of time on the damn classified documents. It's like we've gone down this road and now we can't get ourselves off of it. But what do you make of the FBI now arriving at Mike Pence's home for classified materials? Uh, they say it's a consensual search for classified material. And uh, the spokespeople for Pence are not immediately responding for comment. I mean, he's already disclosed that he found some classified do documents in his in his you know, stash. Um, he's just the latest of the many officials, Trump, Biden, Pence. Uh, we don't know how wide the net has been cast, but is this a thing? Is this still a thing? Is this still relevant to the Trump probe? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, the FBI dances around uh, whatever uh, Joe Biden needs to have done. They, they acquiesce to. So Joe Biden has all these documents in all these different places. And sometimes the FBI allows his lawyers to report to him and sometimes they don't and they they understand that 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 method doesn't work with anybody other than what they want it to work with joe biden the other thing and i don't i, don't, I want to be careful how i say this but when donald trump they went into more lago and they said there were nuclear codes and nuclear secrets and then that sort of fell apart and then they did that photo op with scattering papers and at that time, I don't understand why Mike Pence didn't say, because it was known to him. I have documents, too. And I didn't understand why Joe Biden didn't say, well, you know, I have them, too. And I didn't understand why Jimmy Carter didn't say, I have them, too. Had they all done that, then there wouldn't have been a special counsel. And people said, well, Trump is just doing what everybody. But it was only when Joe Biden was worried that the intention on Trump's uh, taking of these documents might go boomerang back to him or he had aides or assistants or said you know what he may have them we've got to be careful then all of a sudden mike mike pence said oh i have them too and then jimmy carter said i have them too and then all of a sudden the narrative became every it's no big thing everybody has them but before that it was a sinister 
you know, plot to sell out our nuclear codes. But had Pence done that when Trump, uh, after the raid, it would have, I think it would have deflected and it would have calmed everybody down. And Carter could have he done the it. same thing, but they, they were, they were selective. And yeah, they were, they were, all of them were selective in their confessions of having documents based on to what degree that would help or hurt somebody. Yeah. Instead, when Mike Pence was asked about, you know, whether Trump was appropriate in keeping those documents or what have you, he, he, threw him under the bus. There was no pause. They're like, well, you know what? You know, so it's like already it's become political and whether it helps you or hurts you as a politician is really what governs the reaction yeah. from these folks. And he knew um, it at the time that he had the documents himself. He knew when he said that, you know, Donald Trump shouldn't have done that. He knew that he must have he? thought to himself, well, I have the same thing, but I'm not going to tell him. And then when Biden happened, he goes, well, I'm going to come forward and help Biden out, I guess. But it's, I, I I hadn't seen the reporting that he knew that he had him at the time. I thought it was another one of those. Oh, I checked. And there they were. I was shocked, shocked, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that he may have disclosed that. But I think he knows um, what he took out of the government, and what he didn't. Well, so Biden has made this classified document thing with Trump a he did it. He did. He did it inadvertently. You know, he wasn't looking to give Trump somebody to compare himself to, but he did. And he is actively making it. Uh, he did it situation when it comes to the Chinese spy balloon. So new reporting on the Chinese spy balloon, which um, has quickly left the national discussion. But he's getting asked about it because he gave two interviews this week, one to PBS and one to Telemundo. Interesting that he's not going to speak to Fox on the Super Bowl Sunday show, which is tradition. We'll get to that in one second. But he will he will speak to Telemundo and he will speak to PBS, which like four people watch. Um and he says he gets asked about the Chinese spy balloon. And this is actually kind of an interesting one um, about whether it was a major security breach for China to do this and for us to allow it to, you know, coast over the entire continental United States for a week. Listen to this, Satu. And wasn't it a, a major breach, security breach for the United States, just the fact that the balloon came into the airspace no. and flew over the country for so many days. No, look, <laughs> the total amount of uh, intelligence gathering that's going on by every country around the world is overwhelming. And the idea that a balloon could traverse, uh, break American airspace is, uh, anyway, it's, it's not a major breach. Wow. What are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Well, I mean, if you, the logical consequence of what he just said is it doesn't matter anyway. Everybody does it. So send a bunch more over. We don't care. They can't they can't hurt us or that they, they have a right to do it or everybody does it. But he was so nonchalant as if everybody does it. Everybody spies on each other. So what was the big deal? I just let this Chinese come across. I think their problem is they 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 didn't get everybody in the room, John Kirby and uh, Biden and Milley to get the narrative straight. So what we've heard in succession is the first one was it was, it, well, they said it was a weather balloon. And then secondly, it was, well, it may have had surveillance, but who would ever think that a low tech balloon would have any efficacy, not compared to a satellite. And then when people pointed out that in fact it did and had advantages, then they said, uh, well, we couldn't shoot it down because we didn't want to hurt people. And then when people said, well, there's one person per square mile in the Aleutians, and five or six. Right. And then they said, well, we wanted to let it go all the way so we could examine it. And then when that fell through, they said, I think the latest one yesterday was, well, we had to let it go because we didn't want to shoot it down 
in deep cold water. We wanted to have shallow water so we recovered. So there's been at least five iterations. And the, the, the reason there has been is they know and everybody else knows that when that balloon entered U.S. space off Alaska, they should have shot it down. And then the, the, I guess the seventh or eighth was, well, everybody knows that the Trump administration uh, allowed it to, to cross uh, the borders. And then they couldn't find one person in the Trump administration that knew about it. And so everything they've said has kind of fallen apart, except the one thing that won't fall apart is the truth. And the truth is that they're either so risk averse uh, that they were scared to offend the Chinese on the eve of Blinken's mini summit in China, or they don't consider the Chinese, for example, an existential threat like they do the Russians. If Donald Trump is president, Megan, and this was 2019, and Vladimir Putin did that and sent a balloon across and Trump didn't shoot it down, and, and they would have impeached him. That would have been mm -hmm. his third impeachment. Joe Biden weighs in on the balloon's alleged connection to the Trump administration. We've now had the head of NORAD saying there were balloon incursions during the Trump presidency and I miss them. And that's a, that's a gap that we're going to have yeah. to address. So, I mean, it's really tough to blame this on Trump when even the current head of NORAD is saying <laughs> nobody told anybody in the Trump administration that this happened. Um, so here's Joe Biden with, with PBS yeah. uh, weighing in on, you know, Trump too. Trump. Listen. Uh, you uh, ordered the, our military to fighter jets to shoot it down off the coast of South Carolina. But Republicans are saying you look weak. I told the military I wanted to shoot it down and it was safe to do it. You know, there were several of these balloons that during the, the last administration didn't even know they were there. The idea that there was a dereliction of duty, is, I think, is a, is a, bizarre, a bizarre notion. Have relations now between the U.S. and China taken a big hit, no. frankly. How do you know? I know. I talked to him. You've talked to Xi Jinping? talked to Xi Jinping before, I, and our, our team talks to their people. During this and yeah, since? Yeah, after this. I haven't talked to him during this. Oh. But look, I mean, <laughs> the idea of shooting down a balloon that's gathering information over America um, and uh, is and that break that makes relations worse. Look, I made it real clear to Xi Jinping that uh, we're going to compete fully with China, but we're not going to look. We're not looking for conflict. Well, I don't feel reassured, Victor. <laughs> it was incoherent because he said that he'd ordered it to be shot down, and then it wasn't shot down. For to, and then he said, "Well, if it was shot down, it it wouldn't affect relations." But then, if that's true, why didn't they shoot it down from the very beginning? And why uh, why isn't the spying affecting the relations? I don't care about whether I, I they're mad. We shot it down. Why aren't we mad? They're they, spying on us. That always affects relations. When they shot the when they they crashed into the EP three under the Bush administration, I think that was two thousand one, and they forced that spy plane down we had 24 people that were hostages and then they dismantled the plane and sent it back they take our drones that are international waters they've done that it always affects it affected uh soviet american when gary powers was shot down and we lied about it so uh, yeah it affects an election but the problem with them is that we saw that with that march 2000 uh, 21 mini summit in Anchorage where they were completely insulted by the Chinese. 
they they have this narrative, and it's I, I I agree with a lot of it that Putin is a thug and he's dangerous, and we've got to use a proxy war. Okay, but China has 1.4 billion people, and it's got a million Uyghurs in camps, and it's in many ways more nightmarish than than uh, Russia because you know they sterilize people, they harvest organs, they're totalitarian. And they're much more capable of doing damage. And yet, I don't know what it is, but you can't talk about China where we get back to the Wuhan, the origins of the Wuhan virus they covered up or the idea that the Trump travel ban was racist. I think Biden said it was racist on the 11th day. Uh, we let it go for 11 days, the virus, uh, the, the pandemic, and then we finally did. And Biden was one of the people who said this is racist. It's either clever Chinese propaganda that they're, a protected minority and they're victims of white racism and Russians are the kind of thugs and tattooed brutes that we put in Hollywood movies as villains. I don't know what it is. Or maybe it's they were so wound up with Russian collusion, 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 and then hot laptop disinformation. And they've never really got the goods they feel on Putin. And now they've got the goods to show the world that he's he's truly evil, which everybody understood. But they're just obsessed about uh, Ukraine and Russia to, and that would be fine with me if they would so show the same level of interest or zeal with China, which is mm -hmm. a much more existential threat. But it was almost as if, well, you know, Russia will never ever let out a nuke in Ukraine. You people are just letting Putin nuclear blackmail. He's saber rattling. It's not even going to happen. Well, we got to be very careful with China. We don't want to interrupt that relationship. We don't want to have this balloon, and and as if. It doesn't make any sense other than they've got there's some reason why they uh, they treat China so differently than our other enemy, Russia. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's like very stark contrast where we're just kind of shrugging like, oh, come on. What's the big deal? You know, we shot it down. Yeah, you shot it down once it was done. Once it had gathered all of the information, it was sent, it traversed the entire United States and it was leaving. And then you shot it down. The report in the Times yesterday was um, this thing did have the tools to collect communications signals. Uh, it was, quote, clearly for intelligence surveillance and inconsistent with the equipment on board weather balloons, which, of course, was the Chinese excuse. Uh, they have flown these balloons over more than 40 countries across five continents, according to the State Department, this again in the New York Times, and collecting similar um, surveillance information. So I guess we're just going to shrug our shoulders and invite more because that's what happens when you don't absolutely. punish. Any parent knows they, they, you let the bad absolutely. behavior go on once, you're going to get a whole lot more of it. They look at our so-called magnanimity as weakness to be exploited, not to be reciprocated with kindness. And you know what they're doing now. They're calling up the Japanese, South Koreans, the Taiwanese, the Philippines, the Australians, and they're saying, do you really think that you're under the American uh, defense umbrella? Do you really think that these people are going to come to you in extremists when we just sent balloons over there and they're apologizing to us, basically? They wouldn't even shoot it down. And you, we're in your neighborhood and we're much more dangerous to you than the United States is friendly and protective of you. So you better make the necessary adjustments. And that's what they do all the time. They tell all of those countries that the United States is in decline and they can't be counted on and they need to make uh, some kind of rapport with the Chinese. And, and they're yeah. right in a way because this looks really makes us look really stupid. You just have and Joe Biden we, saying well, I, we, we talked and we're not going to have conflict. 
okay, but then they did something provocative. I'm not calling for a world war, but what's your plan? Like, how are you going to brush them back? What's the punishment going to be, the, the deterrent? So far, I haven't heard it. Um, no, Victor, before no I take a break, can I ask you this? So I mentioned at the top, two interviews this week, post State of the Union. Um, again, with all due respect, P- PBS has no viewers. Telemundo has some, uh, but won't sit with Fox, according to the latest reporting. Fox hasn't commented on it. CNN's actually reporting this, that Fox has all but lost all hope for a Super Bowl interview. Typically, it would take place today. Like, I'm sure it would be Brett Baer, uh, chief political anchor. And uh, he, typically, that would take place on the Friday before the Super Bowl for with the network that's hosting the Super Bowl. This year, it's Fox. And then it would air in the pregame before the show. Uh, we're told it hasn't happened. Brett said that earlier this week on the air, time's running out. Trump did stiff arm, I think it was NBC in 2018, but sat, um, I think, the other years for this kind of thing. And there'd be no reason for Joe Biden to say no to this since he's on a little interview kick other than Fox's ideology. What do you make of it? I remember Bill O'Reilly interviewed, I think it was Barack Obama, and he was he was pretty tough on Obama. And Obama did pretty well. And and back and forth. That's what the idea was. But if I was Joe Biden's handler and I was a progressive zealot, I wouldn't let him go on uh, Fox because Brett Baer would conduct an honest interview and he's never had an honest one-on-one interview. And so there would be questions about, well, you know, he would say, maybe Brett would ask the first question, as you said on a national stage, that the laptop was disinformation. And it wasn't hunters. You said that to the American people on two occasions. What do you think right now? And what would he say? And you said that Donald, right in the middle of an investigation of Donald Trump uh, so-called documents, you weighed in and said he was irresponsible. Does that apply to you? So there was all he, he just he's not able mentally to handle those questions and his handlers know it. So in their way of thinking, the downside of looking weak and not wanting to go on is not nearly as bad as what he's capable of saying. And uh, so I, I guess if I was this hammer, I wouldn't let him go on either if I was cynical like they are. OK, you're going to love this, Victor. This is just breaking as you're speaking. <laughs> the president will not be sitting with Fox News Channel. The president, according to Corinne Jean-Pierre, was looking forward to an interview with Fox Soul. S-O-U-L, to discuss the Super Bowl, the State of the Union, and critical issues impacting the everyday lives of Black Americans. But we've been informed that Fox Corporation has asked for that interview to be canceled. Fox Soul is apparently a new live and interactive streaming channel dedicated to the African-American viewer, aiming to celebrate Black culture and deal with the real topics that impact the lives of everyday Black Americans. It is operated by Fox television stations. It launched not long ago. (laughs) This this has to be the worst example of (laughs) absurd pandering I've seen from a president in a while. I want to speak to the one branch of your massive news organization that addresses the problems of black Americans only (laughs) and not to Brett Baer, one of the most respected news people in the country. Uh, and a good guy who would give him a tough but fair interview because why? Because because he works at the same place that Hannity and Tucker work. Man up, President Biden, man up. And Corinne Jean-Pierre comes out to say we were perfectly prepared to sit with Fox Soul. We're just not going to do it with 
anyone from the Fox News. I mean, I can't believe this is just ridiculous beyond parody, Victor. It, it is. I mean, they obviously they thought that Fox Soul would offer less pressing questions, as you point out. <laughs> but what, what's really disgusting is it's racist. They were basically saying we'd rather have somebody who was African-American and not white from Fox to to interview you, I guess, yeah. in a way. But even more so, they think the downside of pandering to Fox Soul and to Black America is not nearly as bad as telling the regular Fox people you're of the wrong color or you're the wrong constituency. They don't, they, they feel there's nothing, there's no downside with that. It's, but, you know, we may be weak and we may be opportunistic by just focusing on black, uh, Fox soul, but that wouldn't be nearly as bad as going on uh, and getting humiliated or offending people by saying that we're picking That's our it. interviewers by their race. Well, no, and they don't they don't want to take the flack from the left in sitting with Fox News Channel, no. whether it's Brett or anybody else. And yes, yeah. Brett would give him a tough interview, but it would be fair. I mean, Brett's not known for yeah. merging with anybody's jugular. After, we know it, you know, Brett. We know that at this state, Biden, he, he wouldn't be up to it. He would just right. he couldn't answer questions. I think he's deteriorating right. geometrically and he's not he hasn't had one like that. I can't think it, of a like, single tough interview he's ever had. The absurdity of being, well, we'll do it with Fox Soul. I mean, I worked at Fox News Channel for 14 years, never heard of Fox Soul when it hit the news in 2020. I, I'm sure it doesn't have much of a viewership yet, though I'm sure they're going to try to build it. But it certainly isn't in the league of the Fox News Channel, which is the number one cable channel out there. They just don't want the association and they don't want him taking any tough questions. And now they've managed to punt the entire thing. See how I worked a football term in there? Victor, stand by. I've got to ask you about this in-depth report on the Nord Stream pipeline and how we allegedly blew it up. Um, crazy developments on this that are being ignored by the mainstream. And Victor is a war games expert. We'll talk about it when we come back. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Victor, this story about the, the pipeline, the Nord Stream pipeline, is absolutely insane, but not unpredicted. Our pal Tucker, speaking of the Fox News Channel, has been on he this did. from the beginning. Um, Reuters, or, let me start before that. So... Seymour Hirsch, longtime investigative journalist, won the Pulitzer Prize, has this long piece on his Substack: How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline, or as Karine Jean-Pierre would call it, the Nordstrom Pipeline. <laughs> that actually happened, not making that up. <laughs> the report says that last June, United States Navy divers operating on the, under the cover of a widely publicized midsummer NATO exercise planted explosives that three months later destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines, um, Nord Stream 1, yes, that was operational, and Nord Stream 2, which was built but not yet operational. And um, that we did it, we had promised that we would do it. Some people may forget, Joe Biden actually said that if the Russians invaded Ukraine, we were going to take, take out these pipelines, like we we're going to shut them down. And he was asked yeah. how, and he was basically like, trust me, we'll do it. Uh, and then it happened. And uh, people like Tucker said it was us. And then it got all sorts of blowback for being a Putin apologist. Uh, but according to Seymour Hirsch, it was us. And uh, that we we 
sabotage the pipelines in the most covert way popular. We used a team of Navy divers that are not members of our special ops command whose covert operations have to be reported to Congress because, Hirsch continues, as long as Europe remained dependent on those pipelines for cheap natural gas, Washington was afraid countries like Germany would be reluctant to supply Ukraine with the money and weapons we wanted Ukraine to have to help defeat Russia. So this is rather extraordinary because, okay, you might think, great, great, we're hurting Russia. We're hurting the EU. We're hurting our own allies, all of whom are part of NATO, which we're part of as well. And it does leave you with real questions about, are, is there any going to be, is there blowback to us as a result of this? Does anyone care that we did this? The White House totally denying it right now. Absolutely not bland, not specific, but no, not true, utterly untrue. A complete fiction is what they're saying. Yeah, what struck me about it was if it was uh, so easily false, somebody, people would in the media cover it and then reject it. But it's it's, it's a, one of the strangest things I've ever seen. There's no coverage whatsoever, maybe a little bit in the Daily Mail or something. It's almost as if all the media said, we're not going to discuss this. And that's kind of strange because I know he's 85, but Seymour Hirsch is sort of, he has a theme that he's very anti-U.S. government. And sometimes he, my lie or Abu Ghraib, but sometimes he's a little out there with the Syrian uh, chemical. He's, he was kind of defending Assad. But the point is that the left always supports his allegations, almost always. And he's got a mixed record. But he, this time they're not. And that tells me something. And I think it's one of those landmines. It's, it's just a little story, but the implications are so overwhelming. And you, you pointed them out. The first is we're not at war with this, with Russia. And if this were, be to tr- this were to be true, we attacked a Russian asset, a Russian property, and we destroyed it in a time of peace. Um, that, that's almost an act of war yeah. against a country that's got 7,000 nuclear weapons. The second thing is that Germany is a NATO partner. It's a joint owner. So, and it was headed into winter. So if that were true, we were saying, well, according to our geostrategic agenda, we're willing to have 80 million Germans get a little cold this winter and get in their heat rooms and chop some wood because we feel the United States has uh, geostrategic agendas that are that trump the ability of Germans to keep warm in the winter. And then, as you said, when Joe Biden mentioned that and he was echoed by victoria newland the undersecretary of state and said yeah. don't almost the same words don't worry one way or the other they will not have this and then after it happened she and sort of gave a high five to ted cruz and said you know like you i'm happy this thing is a bunch of metal under the sea they were almost publicizing in a way that suggested that well it can't be covert and as you said they 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 used they didn't use special teams or they said they didn't, that require eight or eight or so con- congressional leaders to be apprised. So if it happened and they did not apprise Congress and they went around it and they really basically attacked Russia and they destroyed the property that was very valuable to an ally, it, it, it's really has, it has a lot of really strong dangerous consequences for them because i think the american people would even be outraged and it's one of those stories just very quickly if you look at the the laptop it, you know it's it's old stuff except if any 
if on that laptop there is evidence that Joe Biden got money and he didn't pay taxes, I mean, everybody fights about deductions. But one thing the IRS goes off is unreported income. That is very serious. Same thing about the documents. Everybody has, we're sick of the document story. But if any of those documents, any of that material can be proved that Hunter Biden used it for personal gain, that's a that's a landmine. That's uh, another level. story was, I don't know if you saw that very weird story that was reported by the Israeli prime minister that there was a deal in progress between the United uh, the Ukraine and, and Russia discussions that maybe they would accept the 2014 borders and Zelensky wouldn't be in NATO, but he'd get to be armed. Putin would pull back and the Israelis, I mean, there's a lot of contention over it, but the Israeli prime minister reported that he was in on it and the United States made it clear that they did not want that to happen. And if that's true, that, that's another thing that has explosive consequences, that we interfered in a war between Russia and Ukraine in the sense that we wanted it to go on. And maybe Ukraine even didn't. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what's been reported. Mm. And there is some substantiation by the Israelis. So all of these things, this administration is so reckless that there's elements of these stories that we just dismissed, that if they were fully investigated and turned out to be true, they would be impeachable. That's the thing. Where's the press? Let's find out whether this is true. You not know, like there. is this there's such detail in this report. It's hard to believe it's not true. There is. I mean, there somebody's is. clearly leaking to him. And, you know, normally the media would love to get its hands on a story like this. If this had been a Trump thing, they'd be all over this. I mean, this actually could bring down a presidency, unlike, you know, classified documents and things like that. Oh, um, if it's true, I think they would they would file articles of impeachment in the House. They right? have to because it would show that the president of the United States attacked Russia uh, without going to Congress or anything. And he violated the security protocols that say he has to disclose this to Congress. And he deliberately attacked the property of a NATO member. Right. Right. I was going to say, not to mention the consequences to to Germany uh, of all of this. All right. In the time we have left. uh, Sorry, I've got to ask you this. Yeah. Yeah. Reported earlier this week about how some 43,000 migrants have been bused to New York City and they're being bused all over the country now by these southern state border state governors who have had it and said, great, you want to be a sanctuary city? Here's a bunch of people to give sanctuary to. Mayor Eric Adams in New York is at the end of his rope. Uh, He doesn't know what to do with these folks. He put a bunch of them in this relatively nice hotel, 450 bucks a night. We were paying for them to stay there. All these migrant men and people said, what are, what are we doing? We don't want all these but like single men, migrants staying in this hotel in the middle of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, so then he decided he'd ship them out to Brooklyn and he'd bring in migrant families for the hotel. In any event, it's not going well. So the next move was we're going to bus them up to Canada. We're going to give people a ticket to Canada. And all these migrants said, great. And there was an interview. We talked about it earlier this week in which many said, great, get me out of this hellhole. It's like New York City's disgusting. There's homelessness. There's drug use. I, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. So they get on the buses to go up to Canada. You can't make it up, Victor. And now the Daily Mail reporting. They're turning back. <laughs> they don't want to be in Canada because it's too cold and it has, quote, a lot of snow. <laughs> they would like to be returned to New York City because Canada is cold. And one woman who's the director of a New York nonprofit helping to bust the migrants to candidates, the Canada said they arrived in Canada expecting better access to jobs and health care. 
they think there are all these jobs up, up here and that asylum is super easy to get. Now they have found out that none of that is true and that they're going to freeze their asses off. Half these people are from, most of these people are from Latin America. We don't know what to do with them. To me, it seems like the strategy is working of these Southern state governors and the border state governors to make the Northerners feel their pain. Yeah, there's two themes very quickly. And one is the illegal alien has a sense of entitlement. They feel they can come into our country. Break First thing they do is break the law. Second is break the law by residing here. And the third is they usually get phony idea and make demands on their hosts. There's no gratitude. It's, hey, I don't like this. This is not up to my standards. You should never be here. And once you do, and the second is that everybody in the abstract talks about the noble illegal alien, but in the concrete, they don't want to be around there because they have no background check. They have no audit. They don't know what they're getting into. And so the, I, I see it every day when I hear on the farm and I see it in the person, then I go to Stanford during the week and I hear all these soapbox lectures about people who never want to get near uh, illegal immigrants, but give lectures about how noble they are in the abstract. So mm -hmm. this really cuts to the quick and shows how phony both the immigrants are and the host. It's ridiculous. They're not looking for asylum. When you're seeking asylum, you're fleeing your no. potential death and destruction back at home. <laughs> you're not bitching about the snow. You know where it's warm? Latin America. Go home. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Home. Victor, so great Go to home. have you. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, coming up, I'm going to be joined by entrepreneur and best-selling author Patrick Bet David. Looking forward to meeting and speaking with him. You can host the best backyard barbecue when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well, inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Now we turn from BDH to PBD. This is a true rags to riches story. PDB is Patrick Bet David. He was only a child when his family escaped war-torn Iran and fled ultimately to the United States. But things were not all sunshine roses when they got here. It was a rocky road, but Patrick eventually made a name for himself and is now living the American dream completely self-made as a CEO, author, and host of the PDB podcast uh, with millions following his interviews and advice. PBD. I keep saying PDB because it's Presidential Daily <laughs> Brief. It's PBD. He joins me now. Patrick, great to have you here. It's great to be on with the great Megan Kelly. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. I love your story. And I love that you just pulled yourself up from zero advantages other than a loving family, which is big. But I mean, no connections, no money, no good grades, no one believing in you, <laughs> pretty much no one believing that you could do it. Uh, very open about your crappy SAT scores and grades and so yep. on to build your own empire. And uh, as I read your story, Pat, it seems like something about you, like your positivity, something innate in you resonated and was sort of the, the through line f that brought you from all of that to your, your incredible success. Do I have it right? What do you think? 
You, you know, when you live in Iran, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. But when you're born and raised in Iran, all you know is Iran. It's like when I go to Alabama at a Waffle House and I say, so how is it growing up in Alabama? And they'll say, this is all I know. So I grew up in Iran. The, the one thing we knew uh, about the States was when you watch Rocky Four, in Rocky Four, where Sylvester Stallone says, you know, if he can change and you can change and I can change, we can change. And you're just watching this guy. Man, America must be amazing. So finally, uh, you know, six weeks after Khomeini dies, we escape Iran. We go to Germany. I lived at a refugee camp in Germany for a year and a half. And it was a great case study because in Germany, I had a chance to hang out with people from Albania, Yugoslavia, Czech, Poland at the time. And you're hearing about why they left socialism or communism Afghanistan, Pakistan, why are you in Germany? Why are you trying to make it to the States? And it's like, you know, how to win friends and influence people on steroids, except you got a year and a half to go through this and learn these different cultures. And then we finally came to the States. And when he came come to America, uh, and I remember watching the news with my uh, mom and my, uh, we're in Granada Hills, she's watching the news. And this reporter is saying bad things about the president. This is 1990, November 20th. We come here. So it's probably going to be 91-ish. And my mother, because we're like, you know, watching this, being so familiar with the Iranian system, they're like, poor man, they're going to kill this reporter. And my relative says, no, no, this is America. They don't kill reporters. You're going to be okay. Obviously, they're having the banter together. But the ability to come to the greatest country in the world, America, where a regular guy like me with no generational wealth, I am not white. I don't speak the language. I don't have the right GPA. My parents got divorced twice in 20 years. And if you decide to want to do something with it, you can build an incredible life here, regardless of your religion, regardless of your background, regardless of, you know, how much money you have, how much what's your situation is, any of that stuff. You know, I can speak on how great of a country America is for hours, but you, you take that plus the opportunity of meeting some good people, good examples, you know, going into military, you learn the toughness of military, the unity, the camaraderie. And then you apply that in business. Obviously, a lot of that kind of helps you helps you out. But uh, yeah, I, I can talk about America all day long on how much I love this place. I I love your optimism and your yeah. You are sort of inspirational and sunny in a way that we need. We need like inject it into my veins, as the kids say, because the messaging everywhere. I mean, just take Disney and their absurd new. I guess, animated series about how America was built on slavery and it was built by slaves and they've never atoned and we want reparations. This is for children. That's the popular messaging right now. Not you can do it. Land of opportunity. To the contrary, it's no, that shit doesn't work. That's the new the new messaging. They, they're going to try to do that. You know, I was being interviewed on a podcast yesterday, this this uh, pastor who runs a church, a Presbyterian uh, church and they started a podcast. I said, okay, I'd love to be on a podcast. They invited me. We're talking. They said, so what is the biggest challenge we're facing in America today when it comes down to the family nucleus? I said, look, in life, everyone's going to sell you a philosophy. You have to choose which philosophy you want to buy into. Any philosophy you buy into comes with rewards and consequences. For example, if my philosophy is poor you, Patrick, you came from a divorced family. You were born and raised in Iran. You've seen a lot of trauma. You must be dealing with anxiety and panic and trauma and all this stuff. So look, just take the safe route. Maybe take these different medications. Maybe go to this one class because you need that kind of therapy. But poor you, you know, poor you, Patrick. If I buy that philosophy, what's the good feeling about it? Well, I have no pressure to do anything. It feels good. I don't have to step up to anything. 
I don't have to man up to anything. I don't have to show up. No one's expect me to work hard. No one's expect me to win. So life is a safe and warm and fuzzy place. Now, the consequences, you'll be struggling financially. You will eventually become more and more bitter as you age. You'll become more and more upset with the philosophy you bought into. And then eventually, you'll be the story of the grumpy old man sitting around upset at your wife, upset at your kids. You're on your second or third marriage. You're not having your dreams become a reality. But there's a good and the bad. The other philosophy that you buy into you can do something about your life. Why don't you, instead of watching Netflix and chilling, uh, go pick up a couple business books. Go learn about how money works. Why don't you start a part-time gig? Why don't you go take a master class? Why don't you go take a course on Udemy? Why don't you take some late-night courses? Why don't you go get your real estate license part-time on the side or do insurance or finance? Do something with your life. Turn off the TV. Turn off the radio. You have the time to do something with your life. That message, right? You listen to it like, okay. And if you do that, maybe one day you'll have a shot at your dreams becoming a reality. So what's the good? What's the bad? Let's go with the bad first. Here's the bad. If they're right, you'll actually have to work after school. You'll have to work after work, which means if you have an eight to five job, you still have to work after five o'clock. So maybe you come home at 10 o'clock. Maybe you're going to miss some football games. Maybe you're going to miss some shows on Netflix. Maybe you're not caught up on Ted Lasso. Maybe you're not caught up on some of the shows that everybody else is watching. So yes, you may lose 100, 200, 1,000, 2,000, maybe 5,000 hours for three, five, 10 years. But then what's the good? 10 years later, you choose what private school your kids go to. 10 years later, you choose what zip code you live in. 10 years ago, you don't look down with a hunch on your back because you feel like you owe everybody everything. 10 years ago, you can stand up tall and impose your beliefs and your confidence into your kids and other people you talk to. But regardless, the, the philosophy that's being sold to our kids in schools, high schools, colleges, universities is poor you or shame on you. Shame on you for being white and being, you know, a bigot or poor you for being black or Middle Eastern or Hispanic. Either one of them is a crock of, I don't know if we can curse here or not. This, this is not. Yes, the, you can. You know, you it, can. We can't or we can. You can't. Let it fly. It's what it is. It's a full on <laughs> crock of shit. And unfortunately, we need more uh, brave people and men and women that are not afraid to voice their opinions and their thoughts. You know, I love everything you just said. It's reminding me uh, in the news today, the actor Idris Elba um, made these great comments the other day. Now, now he's getting blowback. So he there was an interview by him published Wednesday in Esquire UK. He's British uh, and uh, he's you know award winning actor. And he was he was in The Wire. He was in a bunch of great things. Um, I know him from the BBC series Luther. Um, anyway, so he comes out and he says, I don't refer to myself as a black actor. This label yeah. put me in a puts me in a box and race has become an obsession. And, and this obsession with race can hinder aspirations and growth. Quote, if we spend half the time not talking about all the differences, but the similarities between us, the entire planet would have a shift in the way we deal with each other. As humans, we're obsessed with race and that obsession can really hinder people's aspirations and hinder their growth. Racism is very real, but he believes it's only as powerful as you allow it to be. He says, I stopped describing myself as a black actor when I realized it put me in a box. We've got to grow. We've got to. Our skin is no more than that. It's just skin. Rant over. And uh, said, I, I don't like to be asked what it's like to be the first black to do this or to do that. It's the same, he says, as if it would be if I were white. It's the first time for me. I don't want to be the first black. I'm the first Idris. So this is amazing, right? And you know, most people sat back and said, right on. You know, I'm thinking of Camille Foster, who comes on this show with the fifth column, similar messaging. 
Thomas Chatterton Williams. He's like, I stop. I'm not a black this. My daughter's not a black that. She's a person. I'm a person. Stop it. So now you get the root. Uh, there, Chanel Janai, who writes out, she's puzzled. So Chanel is puzzled by this admission he made. Uh, I understand the intentions, uh, but there are a few flaws. For starters, racism is not as powerful as we allow it to be. Uh, and goes on to say, why? Because America was founded on racist and anti-Black ideals that continue to systematically oppress Black people, people of color and other marginalized communities yep. to this day. If all it took was for individuals to say, I no longer give power to racism, then this problem should have been eradicated centuries ago. Secondly, uh, I can understand why you'd think our skin is just skin, but it's not. Our skin should just be skin, but because of systemic racism and global anti-blackness, what should be looked at as something simple has long been politicized, criminalized, and demonized. And of course, she maintains today we're in the same place as we ever were. This is the problem. You know, some folks are just set in this mindset, Pat, where it's like, no, you cannot do it. Your skin color is the most important thing. So, first of all, you know, kudos to him for saying that. But here's the part, uh, Megan, both you and I know this. Within how many minutes or hours of that story breaking, do you think his publicist called him or his agent called him or his manager called him or his friend called him or a court worker called him or a former actress or an actor he did a movie with saying, you can't say something like that. You got to take that back. You know how much progress we've made over the years for you to say, we understand you're not American. You, you got to say something about it. You're hurting our industry, the young actors that are coming up. So then we learn about the man's courage and toughness. If in that moment he breaks, mm -hmm. he's afraid of his career. If he stands up, he gains a whole new level of respect from a lot of different people. For example, the great Morgan Freeman. He's a phenomenal actor. He's on Don Lemon. He's on Mike Wallace. He's, I think it's Chris Wallace or Mike. I think it's Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace He's now. doing this interview yeah. and they're having the conversation. And he says, why have Black History Month? Do you have a white history month? No, why don't you have a white history month? I don't want a black history month. And then Don Lemon asks him the question and he challenges him the same exact way. Now, here's what's interesting. You listen to the argument he makes and he sticks to it. He gets a salute. Watch what happens just three days ago, which I'm sure you saw this. Last week, this guy who just passed up Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the all-time scorer in the NBA, his name is LeBron James. He calls himself mm -hmm. King James, okay? He decides to share the conversation that Morgan Freeman had with Wallace on Instagram, not knowing that clip was shared by a man named Charlie Kirk. And he immediately takes that clip down. Why? Because God forbid if he agrees with anything Charlie Kirk says. So what does that tell us? Naturally, everybody has common sense, including LeBron James, including Idris, including all these guys. But the moment you get the calls that you, God forbid, may not be invited to those parties or the next movies or all this other stuff, let me make a statement of apology and say, look, we saw what John Cena did a few years ago. I speak this. Here's a man that speaks their language, speaks Chinese, apologizing Chinese, cried all of that after a simple comment he made about Taiwan. So it is a very dark world when you're in Hollywood. There's a lot of bullies. It's the industry of where they are about anti-bigotry, yet, the, yet, they're, yet they're the biggest bigots. They're anti-bullying, yet they're the biggest bullies behind closed doors. But it's great to see some of these guys standing up for themselves. Yes, it is. It's great to hear. Like, I mean, this obviously very well admired 
um, actor say, like, don't don't describe me as a black actor. Don't describe me. Don't put me in boxes. Don't say the first black this. Don't say don't say any of that stuff. I feel the same as a woman. I've told the story before, but at one point during the Obama administration, I was invited to go to the White House. They were having like an all female reporter day. It was like, no, call me back when you just want great reporters. I'm not going there uh, because of my lady parts, right? Like this is really absurd. And I love this story that you tell about your you're your coming up. Okay, so you're you're a kid. You're originally from Iran. Your mom's on welfare. The divorces it's not going particularly well in the academic field. Um, you wind up joining the military. You do that for a short amount of time, and then you decide to try your hand in corporate America. And you go. You start working for Bally's. Bally's Total Fitness. Now I I like this story because in, back in my youth. As I like to say in another life and another body, I used to teach aerobics for a long time. I worked at all these gyms, never ballets, but a lot of gold. And um, there's really room for advancement. If you really put your time in at these gyms, like you can move up the corporate ladder there and you were doing it and you were crushing and they gave you a challenge to go work on this smaller sort of branch. And if you could turn the numbers away, they were going to give you Hollywood on the weekends to manage that. And you wanted it. Yep. You, you were like, I'll do it. And you crushed the assignment. You come back. Now, tell us about the meeting you had with the manager, because I really want to delve uh, into this with you. When I when I heard about this, I'm like, I don't understand whether he's beating himself up for the way he challenged this or whether he's pat himself on the back for the way he he handled this, because I had a strong reaction to the way you handled it, which, which I will not reveal until you talk about it. So you, you tell us the story. Well, I'm kind of putting the dots together. I'm kind of, you know, kind of seeing where <laughs> you would go with this one. But, you know, uh, uh, yeah, listen, I'm working at Bally's. I want to be a bodybuilder. So I'm, I start up with Culver City. My sister introduced me to Bally's because she was working at Encino. So I start with Culver City, guy named uh, Cisco, Dexter McClendon. I'm having a great time. They send me to Fox Hills Mall to sell memberships. I become the rookie of the month. All the great things happen. Then they ship me out to Hollywood off of El Centro. I become a salesperson. No manager, nothing. I love the club. But they said, we will give you the weekend manager position. If you go to Chatsworth, help out Chatsworth as a weekend assistant manager, then we'll bring you back to Hollywood. I go to Chatsworth. We take Chatsworth from 42% of hitting their goals to 115%. And I was competing with this guy where Robbie Solomon said, if you beat this guy named Edwin Guerra, if you beat him, you'll get the job over here. Anyways, I beat him. I'm number eight. He's number 10. At a smaller club, I produce, I'll produce him. And he's at a bigger club, Hollywood, that was 40, 42,000 square feet, beautiful club. And then Robbie comes in to meet with me. Now, I'm all prepared. I got my Bally's short sleeve shirt. I've creased it. I'm, you know, <laughs> going through the whole thing like military. He comes in. He says, Patrick, let's go sit in the back. They're about to promote me. I'm telling everybody pumped up. He says, well, I'm here to tell you, great job what you did last month. Thank you. And I'm here to tell you, we want to keep you here because you're doing such an awesome job. This is a great fit. I said, no, 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 no. Your promise was if I do this, I go become weekend assistant at Hollywood. I beat the guy. So I want that job. He says, no, we've decided we're going to give that job to somebody else, not you. I said, wait, what do you mean? Who are you giving it to? He says, Edwin Guerra. I said, why would you give it to Edwin? He's been here six years. You've been here for nine months. That didn't sit well with me. At the time, I had saved $10,000, which to me, that's a lot of money at 21 years old. And I said, I can't do this. I said, if you're doing this, I'm quitting. He says, Patrick, you're not going to quit. You're going to be a supervisor here making 100, 150 a year. You're not leaving this place. I said, I'm telling you, my dad taught me to work off of work. If you said, I do this, I get this. I did this. I earned this. No, we're going to give it to such and such, but stay with us. You got a long career here. Anyways, I quit that day. I walked out. The crazy part about the story is my ego got hit right afterwards. 
because I go and start a business and I fail miserably. I go and did $49,000 and I have to call this guy, Robbie Solomon, a year later and ask him for a job. And he put me at Hollywood, Jim, intentionally, but he gave me the morning uh, uh, position, which was like 4 to 12. Nobody in the right mind buys a membership at 4 a.m. in the morning. No one even shows up to buy a membership in the morning. Anyways, he did that. I'm grateful for him. Later on, I left, went to Morgan Stanley, started my own financial from the rest is history. But in that moment, you know, as a young man, it's very hard when you're going through it. I had to make the decision and uh, it ended up working, uh, working out very well for me long term. So I couldn't tell in your writing about this, whether you were kicking yourself or getting up and walking out or or glad you got up and walked out. And I will tell you from my perspective, I was like, right on, get out of there. Yeah. He set a goal, you met it, and he did not live up to his word. He was not honorable in that moment, whether he was overall, I, I know not. But what he did that day was not honorable. And if you can't trust the word of somebody, you know, who you're so intimately connected with in the workplace setting, why would you want to continue working for them? I realize you need a job, but I love that you stood on principle even when you didn't have the dough. You know, you know what it is. Here's the one thing that gives me a lot of confidence. So coming up as a young entrepreneur or a young salesperson or a young soldier, it, there's four things I learned that ought to give you 100% confidence, okay? Number one is outworking your competitors. I picked up my dad's work habits. So my dad worked at a 99 cent store in Inglewood right next to the Great Western Forum. So he's a 5 a.m. to 10 o'clock at night guy, six days a week. He takes one day off. I work like he does. So if you can work, you don't have a lot to worry about. But the first one was outwork. The second one, which not a lot of us do, is the out-improving side. So I know I'm going to read four books a month and I'm going to work on myself. This is when I finally figured out that the content is out there. The secret sauce, secret recipes, secret strategies are out there if you're feeding your mind. So I was reading and I had to out-improve my peers. So outwork, out-improve. And then the other two takes a long time to come. It's out-strategize. It takes a couple decades at least a decade to get better strategies. You can borrow some strategies, but some of it, you almost have to go in the gutter and fight and get dirty and slay a few dragons here and there to realize what it's like to pick up those strategies because you're going to fail a lot. But the last one, Megan, this game of business and competition where you ought to have confidence is I just knew I was not going to stop. So the outlasting philosophy is where the confidence comes. And you never know that because you know how at first you're like, well, you know, uh -oh. one day I want to do X, Y, Z. And you got five classmates making, go back to you being, you know, 20 years old, you're in school and you got all these girls that you're competing with. They're your friends, but it's competitive. Everybody's like, oh, that person's one going to be a senator. That person wants to be a CEO. This person wants to do that. Nobody knows who's going to do it or not because none of us know who thinks the biggest. And then five years goes by, 10 years go by. And then you're here, you know, moderating a presidential debate and, one of the most legendary moments where, you know, Trump Trump comes back with the most subtle response to you, very, you know, uh, uh, comedic, whatever response that he has. Mm -hmm. But you were you are like the face everywhere. So how come Megan made it to the highest level? What did she do different? You outlasted a lot of tough situations. This is not an easy game. So the confidence for me at that moment with Bally's was I know how to work. I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to hope to learn better strategies, and I think I can last. If I can do those things, the, the capitalistic, capitalistic system is going to favor people like that. I think, first of all, thank you for those nice words. I, I think you had something else, too, though, because what the, in that moment, there's a principle. It's your principle telling you, 
I will not be treated like this. I need to be surrounded by people who I trust or I'd rather be on my own. Like there are no matter how badly I need the paycheck or what a great runway I see for myself at this company, I'm not going to allow myself to be treated like this. And it's, it's hard when you don't have power and you don't have money to remember principle still matters. Like it's a lot easier when you have a lot of dough and power. So I really, I thought it was a great story. And I think there is an example in there because, you know, you don't, you sacrifice your principles, you have very little. So that was your driving force. But the other thing is you, you always seem to like, to what extent is your innate optimism and ability to relate to humans play in here? Because that story about you, when you had nothing, you had, you had a crappy resume, you had, you hadn't even gone to college and you're applying to Morgan Stanley, they don't hire people who did not graduate from college, never mind business school. And you did it with an amazing cover letter and a joke. Only somebody with a special brain even thinks to do that. Like, I'm going to go with my EQ. I'm going to dazzle them with my EQ, if not my IQ. And everybody wanted you notwithstanding. So like, there's something in you. Like, was that always there? Well, how did you develop that thing that, that led well, you to write I mean, that letter? Yeah. You, you know, uh, uh, you, you ever hear stories of comedians, the guys that make it to the top. And when you tell them, so, hey, why are you so funny? And they'll say, you want to know about my life? I did not have an easy life. And the reason why I didn't have an easy life, what we could lean on was comedy. Dave Chappelle, hey, you know, we have this or Kevin Hart, his story with his father or Joe Rogan, or you can tell so many of these stories with comedians. Uh, to me, entertainment, joke, sarcasm, humor is the ultimate coping mechanism to go through challenging times. And when you are living in Iran, there is no hope. You, We lived luckily in a family where both my dad's side, the Syrian family, they were very sarcastic, very funny, very witty. And my mother's side, I mean, even funnier and wittier. And I mean, they, they were just very witty. So I grew up in that environment. You had no choice. We don't have money. So all we tell is tell each other jokes. Can you make me laugh? Can I make you laugh? And we're going to go through this tough time together. So that kind of stayed uh, along. And then when you go to Germany and I start my first business at 10, 11 years old, and I'm trying to win people over through humor. And then later on, I applied to Morgan Stanley Dean. There's no way in the world. I didn't even know what Goldman Sachs was back then. I applied to them. And uh, Goldman Sachs, like, listen, <laughs> there is, there is, you know, T.D. Waterhouse, there is Solomon Smith Barney, there's Morgan Stanley, there's Merrill Lynch, then there is, you know, Goldman Sachs. You're not going to get a job at Goldman Sachs without an MBA. Anyways, so yeah, I send a resume in. My resume's got Hagen dazs Burger King, <laughs> Bally's, military. You're not going to hire me with those things. So on the resume, I put a real nice joke. And then on the bottom, I said, if you're laughing right now, that's exactly how my clients are going to feel when they do business with me. They're going to love me. If you want somebody like this on your team, give me a call. It was faxed back, back then before Monster, Indeed, all these guys. So I faxed it to 100 different places. 30 of them got back to me. Half of them were just laughing at the joke, but they said, you're not qualified. The other 15 offered me an interview. Three of them offered me a job. And I started a day before 9-11 with Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, and Glendale. And then, you know, Got my Series 766, all the other licenses. But it was a very interesting. When I was doing my job interview, you'll appreciate this. I'm sitting next to a girl named Soul, who uh, Dave Kirby gave me the job. I'll never forget that name. So he's doing the interview. He says, you know, you guys are here. Congratulations for the final interview. We're only going to pick one of you. Uh, share with us your business plan. Now, Megan, I've never done a business plan. So oh, she goes first. 
here's the business plan. First quarter, I'm going to target, you know, dry cleaners because they're sitting a lot of cash. Second quarter, I'm going to go after car wash owners. Third quarter, I'm going to go after doctors. Fourth quarter, I'm going to do this. And my SAT score 1560. And I finished a four-year program at UC Berkeley in two and a half years. And I was running a club on the side. And she's saying, there's no way in the world this guy's going to hire me. I said, what's your story? I said, listen, man, I got a one-page business plan. And it's very simple. It's called a three-foot rule. I'm going to talk to everybody. And I'm going to make people laugh. If you want somebody like that, I know how to work hard from the Army. But that's who you're going to get with me. He sits there with the 30-second pause. And he says, you know what? I'm going to offer the job to both of you, except you guys have to share a cubicle together and a computer. <laughs> so we go to our cubicle, and Sol says to me, I have no clue how you got your job. And quite frankly, you probably have no clue how you got this job. Let me use the computer, and then when you're no longer here, you'll figure out what your next job is going to be. But you know you're not going to be here long term because you're not even going to pass a Series 7. Anyway, she ends up becoming a scientist, very successful. I leave, I start a financial firm. But it was an interesting way of getting into the financial industry. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I love everything about that story. And I must know the joke that was in the cover letter. <laughs> so it's the, it's the father has three sons. He tells his sons, when I die, I want you to throw uh, drop $1,000 in the, in the coffin when I'm being buried. The first son goes, drops 10 $100 bills. Everybody cries when the father dies. The second son drops 20 $50 bills. Everybody cries. The third son is an accountant. He writes a check for $3,000, takes the cash, he walks away. So that was the check. I don't know if you got it. He walked away with $2,000 cash, and nobody cashed the check, obviously, because the man is dead. I had to give him an accounting joke. You're not going to fall for a regular joke. It had to be an accounting joke since it's finance. Right. You can't go with like there once was a man from Nantucket. That's too on the nose. I can't do that one. No, these guys (laughs) like numbers. (laughs) That's amazing. I love everything about that. And that ability just to relate to people like that's that's what sales is. That's really at at its heart what banking is. All these guys on Wall Street who do the best are the ones who can talk to people and sort of penetrate that sort of veneer that we all put out there and make us trust, make us give our money, make us, you know, really be vulnerable with our fortune, our our children's education money, all, all the things that you work so hard for. So I, it's something I've seen just since I, I moved to New York 20 years ago. My husband's not in the financial industry, but all of his friends are. And the ones who are crushing it are the ones who are great with people. It's really not about that resume that that gal rattled off. It's about the stuff you said. So I, I, I'm inspired by it. I got the chills when you told that story about uh, no. getting hired. All right. Stand by. PBD. Uh, we're coming right back with more after this quick, quick break. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Patrick, help the people understand how you wound up parlaying your valleys uh, into the Morgan Stanley year into this massive success that you are now like what what happened next the reading of the books the self it was self-education and then how did you make your money yeah great question so by the way the same man that didn't give me the job is the same man that recommended me to read a book called how to master the art of selling by uh tom hopkins and so i started reading books i leave Bally's. i start working at morgan stanley dean witter I fall in love with finances and the financial industry. Then I leave and I go to Transamerica. I'm there for seven and a half years. And then I see what's going on with the marketplace. I saw a big opportunity in the insurance industry. 
when you, at the time, it was interesting because Barack Obama goes and gives a speech at DNC. And next thing you know, in 2008, he wins as a one-term senator and he beats a couple heavyweights purely through social media, Facebook, YouTube ads, $5, $10, and he learned how to get the Hispanic vote. And then I saw Ron Paul back in the days when he raised $6 million on MySpace in 24 hours. It was like a Guinness Book of World Record. And I, I noticed that's the direction it was going. And I saw everything was about girl boss. Everybody, women want to be entrepreneurs. They control 75 cents for every dollar, the decision making. I said, okay, the insurance industry only had 17% of them that were insurance women. And the Hispanics weren't really getting into the market. And people in the industry didn't know how to get into the Hispanic market. And me being from Iran, I can connect with anybody. October of 09, started my own insurance company with one office. And then we grew it from 66 agents to 40,000 agents nationwide, 15,000 agents mm -hmm. active. We have a couple hundred offices nationwide. And uh, e eventually, a company named IMG came and partnered with us, and they bought us out uh, with uh, through Silver Lake. And that was a great experience that took place uh, June 27th of last year. And then 10 years ago, I started part-time creating content on the side with a, a show called Two Minutes with Pat. We would do an episode every week. And then we grew that and it became targeted specifically for entrepreneurs. And then through entrepreneurship, you know, I started doing interviews with, you know, bodybuilders and, you know, Kobe Bryant and politicians and FBI and different personalities. And yeah, my interest for politics kept getting more and more and more. And then we grew. And then today we moved to Florida two years ago. We're in South Florida right now. We're in a building that we are in a bank vault. That is our podcast studio. Mm -hmm. And we have 60 employees working out of this building, production, consulting firm. And then we bought another building down the street that is about to get done this Sunday. It's going to be turning into a comedy club with a full-on set, you know, where different podcasters can do their shows there with a private uh, cigar lounge in the back. It's just a very unique situation. And then we made an offer on an 11-acre uh, land here because we're building our studio. We'd like to build our playground for talent to come down here, whether it's going to be movies, documentaries, shows, uh, podcasts, we're, we're our vision, the next 40 years, we're going to be, we're going to be competing in the media space. So all of that came about to where we are today. Wow. I now I'm getting the, so comedy podcasting, bodybuilding. Now I'm starting to understand your connection with Joe Rogan, who he loves you and has had you on many times. These are some <laughs> of his favorites too. Forgive me for going to the place that hurts, but I, I would like to ask you about the controversy with Joe this week in the news. There's always one or another. Um, he made a comment. Uh, I just, we'll just play it. And now people are coming for him. Uh, it's about it's with our pals Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty were on. And here's the soundbite. Nine. Do you see him set, sitting next to Ilian Omar where she's uh, she's apologizing for talking about it's all about the Benjamins? Yeah. Which is just about money. She's, she's talking about she money. She shouldn't have apologized. She, that I mean, was I'll not, go ahead that's and not say an anti-Semitic statement. I don't think that is. It's about Benjamins or money. You know, the, the idea that Jewish people are not into money is ridiculous. Listen. That's like saying uh, Italians aren't into pizza. It's fucking <laughs> I mean, stupid. Uh, so even Ben Shapiro, who's not, he's, you know, he's not real quick to push for people to be corrected on their speech. But he said he had a private conversation with Joe about how there's a trope. It's sort of like, to, as I see it, Pat, it's like. You can say I'm lazy, me, Megan Kelly, I'm lazy. But if you want to use that term lazy about a black man, it has a different connotation, right? Because it's just a term that's been thrown at them many, many times is like. A, and that's the thing about Jewish people and quote, the Benjamins or the money is like it's a trope. 
that's been thrown at them in particular over time in a way that's wound up being very, you know, destructive. And, and uh, what did Joe say when Ben called him? Did they talk about it or no? Did, did Ben say that sure. Joe received the message? I'm sure he did, right? Joe's like, he's not somebody who's going to be like, F you, why'd you call me to say this stuff? I mean, Ben's been on Joe's show many times. Um, I I'm sure they had a good co conversation about it. All I know, I just heard Ben say that he had spoken to him about it. But what do you make of it? Oh, my God. This stuff drives me insane, Megan. I got to <laughs> tell you, it absolutely drives me insane. Okay. So um, I'm from Iran, okay? I'm not going to say it. You're not going to say it, but everyone's going to think about it. When you think about the events that's taken place the last 40 years, what nationality do people think about? Do they think about, and I'm talking about wars, you know, 9-11, what, what ethnicity do you think about? Do you think about whites? Do you mm. think about blacks? Do you think about Hispanics? Or do you think about Middle Easterns? I'm from Iran. Right. When 9-11 happened, I'm sitting with a family who was a Mormon family. I'll never forget this. I was in Camarillo. This is a literally couple weeks after 9-11 happened. And I'm tall. And at the time, I had a beard. Big mistake. But I had a beard at the time. And I don't. It's not like I look like the friendliest guy. And I'm 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, so let alone add a beard on top of it. Klein looks at me and he says, where are you from? I said, I'm from Iran. Really? Yes. How do you feel about what just happened right now with 9-11? And I said, uh, Matt, it's, it's a shame what just took place. And they say, uh, yeah, you know what? We can't do business with somebody like you. I said, you can't do business with somebody like you. He says, no, we would like to buy insurance, but we just don't trust doing business with somebody from Iran. Now, wow. I'm 23 years old at the time, 23, 24. I'm furious. I'm upset. But I have to sit there and say, okay, fair. I understand why you feel the way you do. I can't come out and cry about it. That is a stereotype that some families and ethnicities and communities have uh, uh, that stays with them. The same are Jews. The same are whites. People are very comfortable to call whites white supremacists or racist. Same with blacks. Same with Hispanics. Same with anything. By the way, last names. I can say the same thing to you with last names. If I gave you a Trump, I said this person's name is Bob Trump. Okay. What are you going to think about him 10, 20 years from now? He's a Trump. What if I say this name, this person's Jack Kennedy related to the family? You're going to have a, a disposition. And what if I tell you this person's last name is Floyd, Obama, Jordan? I can go on Clinton. If I hey, meet uh, uh, Jason Clinton here, really, relation to Clinton's? Yes, he's a nephew. Oh, everybody's going to go somewhere. So this concept about we have to be robots and, you know, get everything to be perfectly in place. I'm sorry. I have a hard time with that. Joe's a comedian. OK, and if you don't like Joe when he's talking the way he does and say this is like the same thing with pizza and all this other stuff, I'm not forgiving on his behalf and I'm not defending him. All I'm saying is we kind of have to grow up a little bit and not act like, hey, you can't say that about my community, yet you do it yourself all the time. So if you want to be forgiven when it's on you, you have to forgive, keep forgiven, uh, move on. I, I have a very hard time with this uh, 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 argument that people make. We kind of have to all grow up and realize. We're going to make these types of comments. And trust me, when it comes down to your term that you want to be forgiven, you want to make sure you let this one go and say, hey, the guy does. How many hours has he spoken? OK, it's like saying how many times has Kobe Bryant uh, uh, made a last shot that he missed because he takes the last shot. They how many hours has Kobe played? How many hours has Joe Rogan played? So I have a heart. And by the way, just so you know, I don't know what Joe said about this afterwards. 
I don't know what Shapiro said, and Joe and I haven't spoken about it. I'm giving you my opinion, and I've not even talked about this on my own podcast. I'm giving you my raw feelings. So I'm sure some people are going to come back and say, how could you say something like that for somebody that left Iran and somebody that's Armenian, a Syrian Christian? Totally get it. This is how I feel about the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I, if, forgive me for the the diversion, but you mentioned the Kennedys. And I know from your books, there was a time in your life when you were obsessed with marrying one. You wanted to be the Iranian <laughs> yes. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? So, like, You thought you were going to be a bodybuilder. You were going to yeah. make it big in industry. You're going to possibly be a Hollywood actor and you were going to marry a Kennedy. Now, why were you obsessed with marrying a Kennedy? It, it, I mean, think about it. At the time, if you think about the <laughs> biggest last names in the history of America, what last names do we think about? Vanderbilt? Rockefeller, Kennedy, uh, you can't even put Reagan in that because Reagan's uh, family lineage is not Kennedy, right? You can put Bush in there with maybe the Prescott and Senior and GW and Jeb and what they've done. Okay. But, uh, you know, Kennedy was at the top. So to marry into a family like that is to say you're going to marry into a famous, powerful family to see what that's going to look like. But I ended up marrying into a family that's called Hudman. And I converted her into a David. And we have four beautiful <laughs> kids together and happily married. And you're fine with that. It la- you landed it in, I am. in a good I'm place. I'm so fine with that. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a more hassle than it's worth, especially that family, which, <laughs> yes, a lot of blessings, but a lot of curses Probably too. Is. My God, it's like, you know, Probably if you look is. at the bad things that have happened to the Kennedy family, yeah. you have to really be hesitant about no joining question. it or yeah, reproducing Yeah, no question about it. Yeah, I think it feels like it landed a good place for you. So now you've got how many kids? Four? Four kids, yes. Okay, including a new baby as of 2021? Yes, Brooklyn. She is 19 months and she's the smartest out of all of them because she loves daddy the most. She's very wise. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So now that you've got the four, has it changed your approach to business, to your your work-life balance, right? How's that playing out for you? a good question you ask. It's a very good question you ask. And my answer is going to be not what you expect. So for me, uh, I hear this story about people that are building a business to say the following, oh my God, I can't wait to be a millionaire so I can give to my kids what I could never get myself and I can spend all the time with my kids. Okay. That sounds good. And I'm sure you visualize unicorns flying over your house and it's just a beautiful climate and great music is playing and people are outside with harps and clouds and all this mm-hmm. bullshit you and I visualize. But that's not how life works. Here's how I see it. The way I see it is the following. What I owe my kids. I did a course a couple months. We did a video uh, uh, on generational wealth. And because I'm at a phase right now where, you know, we're dealing with Goldman Sachs. We're dealing with Morgan Stanley. We're dealing with different kind of methods of updating your estate and all these different things that we have. You know, uh, I'm having the conversations about what's going to happen with these kids when they realize their parents have money and then, hey, what do you do with this? Mm-hmm. So I go up to my kids. D- and don't worry, they're not going to get anything given the state tax laws. They'll get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I go up to the kids and, and Megan, you'll appreciate this. I go up and say, so Tico, Dilly, these are my oldest sons and my uh, daughter who's six. She's there as well. I said, what should happen to the money that we have if, uh, God forbid, I die? And the kids say, well, daddy, the mommy should go. The money should go to mommy. Okay, let me try this question one more time. What if me and mommy die, God forbid? Why? It should go to me. I'm the oldest brother. Okay. So then the youngest brother's like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? How about me? And then he looks at his brother and says, yeah, you're right. Dad, it should be 50-50 between me and Dylan. Then six-year-old daughter, Senna's like, but what about me? And says, Dylan, what should we do? 
Well, we'll give you a little bit of money. Why are you going to give me a little bit of money? So this debate started. They're already fighting. I'm causing this fight 40 years before the event takes place. But then I'm saying, well, let me ask you a question. Should, should everybody get the equal amount if one of you guys decides to do some stupid drugs, you wasted, you marry into a family, and that family could care less about our leg, all this? No, that kid shouldn't get anything. I said, okay, I kind of agree with you. What about this? So they don't even know, but they wrote the trust that day, and they agreed the terms, that 20-minute conversation. Anyways, generational wealth. The Vanderbilt family, they have all this money. They become the richest family in the world. They're worth a few hundred billion dollars of today's money at the time. They built a house worth one and a half billion dollars of today's money. Who the hell does something like that? Their money only lasted two, two generations. Rothschild is seven. Medici is seven generations. Rothschild is four, I believe. Medici is seven generations. So I looked at the things they did right and the things they didn't do right. And you'll notice the ones that did things wrong, they passed down the money, but not the habits. My mm. job isn't to pass down the money to my kids. The hardest job I have is to pass down the habits I have to them. So if on my first kid, my oldest son sees me working hard and the second one sees me working less hard and the third one and the fourth one, all I'm doing is I'm teaching my oldest son hard work and my youngest daughter not to work hard. Because they're going to do what they see, not what you tell them. More is caught than taught in parenting. So for me, yes, they live in a beautiful place. Yes, they live in a place that looks like a resort. And yes, they get to travel. The other day, my nine-year-old son, look at the spoiled kid here, what he says. He says, Dad, I got to tell you this, Dad. Moving forward, I can't do commercial because oh it's too God. stressful. This, <laughs> this is just too much for me. I said, who are you? He says, oh, no. I'm telling you, you book me commercial. I'm not going on that flight. I said, no problem. You're going to go sit all the way in the economy class if you're talking this kind of. No, 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 I'm just joking. You don't know what you just did to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) We are never flying private again. (laughs) So you got to manage that spoiledness that you want that luxury, but they're going to see a glimpse of that. But at the same time, you know, you as a father and as a parent, it's the toughest thing to do. You have to find a way to make their life hard, as difficult as it's going to be, because their life is a lot easier than yours. Yes, that's so good. I love that. Most of it is caught, not taught. You're right. You do have to find a way to make it hard. And it was easier when it was naturally hard for you, for me too. It's not like I had, you know, grew up in a war-torn country where, you know, like you did, but um, certainly had my own challenges. And I know you're a big on turning pain into purpose and using pain as fuel. And I would love to get back to that mentality now. It's like, I will say this, I got this from Oprah and it's real. I've turned on Oprah, but I believe in this philosophy, which is every time something massively difficult, challenging, or even bad happens to you, your first reaction should be to say thank you. Because there's just no way of getting to be a bigger person, like a bigger, stronger, more resilient person without those challenges. You know, you were referencing me earlier. I I definitely out hustled most of the people I ever worked with. That helped that helped me a lot. But also I was just resilient. It was just I, I just didn't know it really matter how much you put me down or attacked me or did something bad to me. Even when I was a lawyer, I would still be there the next day. I'd still be fighting. I was just like very hard to keep me down. And there's no way of getting that in our kids without knocking them down. You know, not ideally not us, but like life. Yeah, you're you're tough, Megan. I mean, you you got a you you got a dog fight in you. They definitely people don't want to be your enemy. You're tough. So, uh, uh, I, I you know, you're on the other end. Of course, you're interviewing me in this setting, but trust me, I have spent a hundred times more hours watching you than you watching me. Uh, it, it's great to see a pro 
no matter what they do. I love seeing somebody who's great in sports, watching what they do, whether it's in movies and Hollywood and politics. You're uh, you're up there with everybody. What what you do, it's it's very tough to do what you do. It's uh, it's very admirable to see you competing and not wanting to say, well, as a woman, this. Nope, I compete against men, women, and this is what I've done. So it's uh, it's admirable seeing you what you've done. Oh well, thank you. No, it's funny. I I, I had plenty of battles with male co-anchors where they thought they should have sort of the first say at this or the first try at that or the first appearance. And I was always like, F you. No, that's not. No, we're not doing it like that. You don't get a you don't get to go first because you've got this or you've got like who's who's stronger, who's got better ratings Make it, Who, is, or is that, is that at, at a minimum, is, we'll is flip it, a coin. But we're not I'm not ceding to you because of whatever. In any event, that kind of practice is important. Is that the youngest sibling? Where did that dog fight come from? I, I, I think it's the combination of being Irish and Italian. I just think it's like, I mean, you can finish like it there. nitroglycerin, you. you know, in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> just needs to be channeled properly. Just you, you just get, get your Irish I'll up, and then your Italians fighting too. This is so fun, Patrick. I hope you come back. I want to. I want a much longer conversation about many more things. Thank you for being here. I look forward to. It. Thank you for the invite. Listen to this BS spin. Bloomberg. Fox News declined a White House offer for Biden to be interviewed by its Fox Soul streaming service targeted to black viewers, the White House said. The White House and Bloomberg are getting it wrong. They're trying to make it look like it was a racist rejection by Fox of this golden opportunity. The interviewer was going to be the actress Vivica Fox. Fox has a whole news channel called Fox News Channel. That's who offered the interview. This is absurd. Grow a pair. I'm sorry. The White House needs to grow a pair. Sit down with a real journalist like Brett Baer. I would do it, too, um, and answer some tough questions for the love of God. Have a wonderful weekend. Don't forget to join us next week. We've got David Sachs. we got Clay Travis. we got Spencer Clavin. He's awesome. Plus much, much more. And I'll be live from Vegas. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.